So we're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and uh, there, there is literally a continuing thought that the writer has been in for, for multiple chapters. He took a little bit of a break, but if you're joining us new, it might feel a little bit jarring because it's sort of going to pick up a thought in the middle. The, the writer to the Hebrews uh, from the beginning has been making the case and making the point that Jesus is superior in several different categories. The superiority of Jesus over uh, the angels and superior over Abraham and over Moses. And now he's making the point about Jesus being a superior high priest to any high priest that's come before him. And that's a bit of a sticky issue for people who were used to the Levitical system. Any Hebrew that was listening to this sermon or that read this letter would have been a little bit um, stirred up inside about, about Jesus as being superior to the Levitical system because Jesus himself was not from the tribe of Levi. So even talking about Jesus as a priest would have been a little bit disorienting. The author has introduced the idea of Jesus as a high priest, a superior high priest, but not in the order of Levi, which is a little troubling to that original audience, but rather in the order of a priest named Melchizedek, who's introduced in the book of Genesis. And in the first part of chapter seven, the writer talks about the fact that the order of Melchizedek is legitimate. He talks about the legitimacy of that priesthood and why it was introduced. Now, as we look at the the second half of chapter seven, the author's gonna make the point that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek and that he is a superior priest and that the old system was insufficient and incapable of doing what mankind desperately needed. But that Jesus as our high high priest in the order of Melchizedek is perfectly competent and perfectly capable and totally sufficient to draw men and women nearer to God. I was convicted and moved this week. Um, Before we even get into chapter seven, I'll tell you that in my preparation, I was... I was kind of I was kind of moved and just a little bit troubled in my study because when you look at um when you look at some of the Old Testament passages it's very interesting to me how often in their poetry and in their psalms in the songs that they were writing the Old Testament writers were absolutely elated to be able to come into the temple courts to have some part in the Levitical system even if it was only just to kind of get close to the presence of God. There are passages like, um, keep your finger in Hebrews chapter seven and turn with me to Psalm 84. Psalm 84 is a psalm that will probably be familiar to many of you. It's a psalm that's been turned into songs and choruses and that sort of thing. I think you'll find it familiar, but I want you just to listen to the way an Old Testament psalm writer, a songwriter, was thinking about being near to the presence of God in the temple. He couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could enter in there. But there was an excitement and a joy just about being able to get close to the place where God's presence resided. It says this in Psalm 84, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As I was thinking about what it meant to say to a Hebrew audience, hey, the Levitical system is weak and powerless. The Levitical system cannot perfect you, which is what the writer to the Hebrews is doing in seven. I was thinking about what that would mean or how that would be received to the original audience, people who loved drawing near to the presence of God. In Hebrew, or excuse me, in Psalm 84, the writer there says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the temple courts. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to be any place else. And one day in the courts of the Lord are better than a thousand days elsewhere. We sing those songs. We sing that chorus. Maybe you've heard it before. But I don't know that we think about exactly what that means. When the writer to the Hebrew says, the old system is imperfect, The old system is weak and powerless. It cannot help men and women draw near to God. It was ineffectual in that regard. What he's saying is that thing that you love, that ability to sort of get close to God, doesn't work. And yet they were thrilled about it. They were thrilled by the proximity of God, by being able to be just that little bit closer. The reason they were thrilled is that we as human beings are designed. We're built from the ground up for relationship with God. We were built to know God and to have a relationship with him. And yet, from the very first story of men and women with God, there was a brokenness that entered the picture. Sin entered the picture and it separated men and women from God. We see that in the Garden of Eden, right? That we were designed and and created for worship and for harmony, for communion with God. And yet, when men and women sinned, they were separated from him. They were rendered spiritually dead. Psalms 5 says, the wicked can't dwell in God's presence because he's holy and perfect, because he's just. It separates us from him, our sin does. It says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The reason why the Old Testament writers were excited about being in the courts of the Lord, why they were excited about being a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord, was that it was the closest they would ever get to his actual presence, because they were separated from him. Men and women like us who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ are separated from him, and our hearts long to be restored to that kind of communion. All of our hearts long to know God and to be known by him. In fact, there's this sort of a great pursuit in our world for people trying to touch the infinite or discover the mysterious or to fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. There's all kinds of ways in which it's phrased. But each and every one of us recognize a fundamental brokenness in who we are, that we were built for more than this, that we were built for more than this, that we were built to have a relationship with God and yet there is a brokenness. We, we hunger for reconciliation. We hunger for restoration with God. And so the Levitical priesthood, every year the Levitical priest would go in and they would offer sacrifices. But in some ways, the people who lived under that system, they always felt and always knew that it was kind of an inadequate system because even though they were hungry for reconciliation, even though they were hungry for restoration, it never actually brought them into the presence of God. It just got them a little bit closer. It was never able to perfect them. The writer to the Hebrews in in verses 11 through 19 is basically saying the old system is inadequate, and if it wasn't inadequate, we wouldn't need a new priest in the order of Melchizedek. If the old system had done what what we were hoping it would do, what mankind needs it to do, then we wouldn't need a new system. He says this in verse 11. Now, 
If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. He's connecting the Levitical priesthood with the giving of the law because they're connected. He says, if perfection had been attainable through that, then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now that might seem a little tangled and a little bit confusing, but here's what he's saying. Why in Psalm 110 did God prophesy about the Messiah, right? There's a messianic prophecy in Psalm 110 verse 4 that says, the Lord swears with an oath, speaking of the Messiah, you will be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that oath from God about a high priest that needs to come in the order of Melchizedek came after the ordaining of the Levitical priesthood. Well, why would God say that the Messiah would be in the priesthood of Melchizedek if the Levitical priesthood was enough? If it was enough, we wouldn't need this other priesthood, and yet God made this oath, which tells us something about the insufficiency of the previous priesthood. Not to get you too tangled up here, but he's going to give us a couple reasons in the text why the old system is inadequate, why the old system, as he says here, was weak and useless. Look at what it says in uh, 17 and 18. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He refers to the old priesthood as weak and useless. On the one hand, a commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. He says the old law couldn't make men perfect. So then the question has to be, well, what would this perfection look like? And he says, well, it couldn't perfect us, but under this new priest, perfection is possible. And what that perfection means, he describes here as a better hope. And look at what it says. This better hope he's talking about is that through which we draw near to God. The better hope that's introduced by Jesus, the thing that the old Levitical law was incapable of doing, was allowing men to get any closer to God than being the doorkeeper in his house, than worshiping him in the courts. There was no greater access than that because the men and women who lived under the Levitical law were never perfected. But Jesus is able to come and give us a greater hope, a greater hope, which is actual access to God, actual access to God, which should be the kind of thing that gets you kind of stirred up. Because if you understand the idea that we're separated from God, the idea that we could be reconciled to him. If you recognize the idea that all of us in our sin are separated from him and set to be separated from him for eternity, the idea that that could be restored should be something we're celebrating, right? That Jesus actually has the ability to make this broken relationship right again. And the old Levitical priesthood couldn't do it. should be exciting. But it's a hard thing for people to swallow because as human beings, we sort of get set in our ways, don't we? We like our old routines, even if they're not necessarily the best, even if they're inadequate in certain ways or they don't work as well. We just kind of want to do things the way we've always done them. And it's hard to get us to try new stuff. My, uh, my brother called me on Wednesday night. My brother's 38. He lives in Phoenix. And uh, he says, uh, you know, m- my mother came out on Thursday. My mom came out to visit for the weekend because my kids are in a school play. 
He says, hey, I just want you to know, mom wants me to come to her house tomorrow morning. That would have been Thursday morning. He called me on Wednesday. He said, mom wants me to come to her house on Thursday morning at 5 a.m. to pick her up and drive her to the airport. He said, but I'm a, you know, I got this new job. I'm a restaurant manager now. He's like, sometimes I don't get home from my job until four in the morning. And he's like, I just don't think I, I don't think I can do it. I think I'm just going to be too physically exhausted to take mom to the airport. So I, I told her, I said, mom, it would be so much better if you would take an Uber. Right? If you take an Uber to the airport, that would be so much better. But my mom, uh, he goes, Mom, number, I don't think she knows necessarily what an Uber is. And if she does know what an Uber is, she's scared of it. Right? So um, he says, I just wanted to let you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to mom's house tomorrow at 5 a.m. And I'm going to order her an Uber on the phone. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to tip the driver. And then I'm going to push her in the car and send her to the airport in an Uber. <laughs> and I said, uh, via text, I said, listen, Danny, that's my brother's name. I said, you know. We both know mom, right? We both know her. And I said, don't you think it might be better, rather than surprising her in the morning with this news, don't you think it might be better to like tip her off tonight? Like maybe give her a call and say, hey, I'm gonna order an Uber for you tomorrow. I said, I just would hate for you to show up at five and sort of surprise her with that because you might die, right? You might, you literally might not live through that. And he goes, Good point, good point. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll call her tonight and I'll tell her. So I'm, I'm, it's quiet, Shannon and I are watching TV and uh, all of a sudden, like 15 minutes later, I get a text from my brother, he goes, I'm gonna drive mom to the airport. <laughs> Smart kid, right? Smart guy, he figured it out. I, I assume he called my mom and said, I'm gonna get you an Uber and she was like, wanna bet? And that was the end of that. So <laughs> sometimes it's hard to sort of change the way you're used to having it done, even if there's a new way or a better way. And there are people who are looking at Jesus and they're saying, well, how can he be a high priest? He's not from the order of Aaron. So the writer here is showing us the insufficiency. He does this in a couple of ways. One of the ways he lays out in the text that the old, the old system doesn't work is that the old priesthood was based on bodily descent, right? He talks in the text about the fact that Jesus is not a priest based on the family he was born into. He's not a priest based on his genetics. He's not a priest because he was born into the tribe of Levi. He's a priest by the very appointment of God and by nature of his indestructible life. That's what makes him qualified. The old system was flawed in that you basically were fit for priesthood if you were from the tribe of Levi. You were appointed into that system basically just because of who your parents were. And we all know that doesn't necessarily always work out well. I mean, I think there'd be many of you who would probably be bothered if I said, hey, someday, you know, when I get old or when I'm too, you know, messed up to do this job anymore, I'm just going to have my kids do it. You'd be like, we've heard stories about your kids, right? This does not seem like a good plan for our church, right? You don't, you don't want me just to put my kid into this job down the road. You want somebody that God has called for this job, somebody who's passionate about this job, someone who loves teaching God's word, right? You, you get that picture. And there are plenty of places in the Bible where people were frustrated because they'd say, well, Eli was a, de- a, a decent priest, but his sons are monsters, and we don't want them to lead us, Right? We don't want them to lead us, but the the system was set up where if you were from the tribe of Levi, you were basically appointed by by rote because of your bodily descent, because of your lineage. It says here that's a problem with the Levitical system. Another problem with the Levitical system is that by the very nature of their humanity, Levitical priests were temporary. They were human, which means they die. They wouldn't last forever. You had limited access and there were limited things that they could do for you because they were temporal beings. In fact, we studied this a couple of weeks ago. When we uh, hear about the, the priests in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it says, 
Every priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Because the Levitical priest was just a regular guy like anybody else, he just came from the right family, well, your access to him was limited. He wouldn't last forever. So it talks in the passage about the fact that unlike those Levitical priests, Jesus has no end. Again, the power of an indestructible life. Not only was the system broken because of the way a priest was appointed, the system was broken because of the temporariness of the priests, that they didn't last. I mean, I have people that are frustrated with me. You know, people will go, hey, you know, why don't we get coffee? And I'm like, I would love to get coffee with you. That sounds awesome. Let me look. We can get coffee on March 2nd, you know, 2019. That's going to be awesome, right? People are like, what are, you talking, what are you talking about? My schedule gets so crazy, but it's because I'm just a regular guy. Access to me is based on where I can be and when I can be there and what's happening. And that's a limitation that's different with the Lord Jesus, right? Not only that, not only, not only was the Levitical system broken because of the lineage issue, not only was it broken because of the temporal nature of human servants, but it was also broken because of the sinfulness of the priests, right? Every Levitical priest in the order of, of Levi, in the order of Aaron, right? Every Levitical priest was by nature a sinner, they were broken people. They were holy. It says in the passage we just read in Hebrews 5, they were able to deal gently with the ignorant and the weak. Why? Because they themselves were ignorant and weak. It was easy for them to show compassion, and that's a good thing, the empathy and compassion from someone who's ignorant and weak. But when you're trying to find somebody to put your hope in, right? When you're trying to find somebody to, to anchor your faith in, you don't want to anchor your faith in someone who is broken and flawed. That's why I've said again and again and again that as followers of Jesus, we must, we must take our eyes off of the teacher. We have to take our eyes off of the institution. We have to take our eyes off of organized religion. We have to take our eyes off of the writings of human authors and the leadership of human beings. And we have to focus our eyes on Jesus, right? Because... <laughs> Because the reality is that I am a human being. So if you put your hope in me, guess what? It's only a matter of time before your hope will be destroyed. Because sooner or later, I will disappoint you. Sooner or later, you'll get to know me well enough and you'll see that I am just as broken and just as flawed as everybody else in the room. There isn't anything unique about me other than my calling to this. And many of you have the same calling, right? So listen. We don't put our faith in temporal priests. We don't put our faith in, in priests who come to the altar with the same kind of brokenness we do. It's a flawed system. And because of that, it was never able to perfect those who wanted to be reconciled with God. But Jesus is a superior priest. He introduces a better hope. And he opens access to God. Jesus himself says in John 14, right? John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. What's he speaking against? He's speaking against the variety of different ways people try and gain access to God. And he's saying none of that will work. And we know that, don't we? I mean, you, you might look at this text and you might go, well, I don't understand how this is relevant to me because I'm not trusting in a Levitical priest. I'm not Jewish. I don't, I'm, nobody's sacrificing any animals for me or whatever. Listen, just because you're not dependent upon the Levitical system doesn't mean that you haven't put your faith in human beings or that you haven't put your faith in human institutions or human writings or in many cases that you haven't put your faith in your own efforts, right? 
You may not be putting your faith in my efforts, but many people are putting faith in their own efforts. Like, I will have access to God if I do enough good deeds, or if I walk enough old ladies across the street, or I put enough money in an offering plate, or I serve enough at the soup kitchen. It is not about your efforts or my efforts. None of those things can save us. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the implication of that statement is that for the first time, those of us who were separated from God in our sin, through Christ, now have access to him. There is a way to draw near to God for the first time in history, and it's through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and he takes our sin upon himself. He comes to earth in the incarnation. He dies on the cross, not because he deserves to. In fact, it'll say later in the text that he lived a holy, perfect, unstained life, and he offered himself. Jesus takes our sin upon himself as a substitute. He dies not because he deserved to, but because we deserve to. Because in his love for us and his desire to glorify the Father, he rescues us from sin and death. He sheds his blood on the cross and he is buried dead, but he doesn't stay that way. He rises from the grave three days later, and in so doing, he proves that he has the power to extend to those of us who are dead and lost and separated from God in our sin. He has the ability to extend to us resurrection life, reconciliation with God, access. And it's a brand new kind of a thing. Jesus doesn't just make it possible for us to stand at the entryway to the temple. He doesn't just make, us pos- make it possible for us to enter into the courts. Jesus makes it possible to have the very spirit of God dwelling within us, 1 Corinthians says, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You don't come to this place to get closer to God. You are no closer to God here as a follower of Jesus than you would be anywhere because God is within you. Not only that, Ephesians 2 and 3 says that God dwells in our community, that he dwells in the midst of us, that Jesus wants to be settled down and at home in us, but that we, Peter says, we're like living stones being built into a spiritual house for the spirit of God to reside in. We don't have to go to a place and get a little bit closer to the presence of God. God makes his abode with us. He makes his home in us, and only Jesus can do that. The writer to Hebrews is making the case that the old system was ineffective. The old system was weak and useless because it could not perfect men and therefore men could not have access to a perfect God. But Jesus can do it. And he gives three proofs, three reasons why we can trust it. The first one is the oath of God. Look at what it says back to the text. Hebrews, look at what it says, verse 20. For it was not without an oath... For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We like guarantees. We talked about that two weeks ago. You buy a new dishwasher or you buy a new mattress, you want to know what the guarantee is. Our guarantee that Jesus is a better hope That the work of Christ gains us access to God in a way that no human institution or human individual can do. Our guarantee of that is the very promise of God. The very promise of God. He swears an oath. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It says, remember, in Hebrews 6, we looked at this a few weeks ago. In Hebrews 6, 17, it says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. 
He makes the oath so that we'll have encouragement to hold fast to our hope. Why? Because he is true, firstly, and secondly, he is unchangeable. Now, the first confirmation that we have that Jesus is a superior high priest is the very promise of God. The promise of God is something we can anchor our hope in behind the veil, right? The promise of God, that he is true and unchangeable. The second thing, in addition to the promise of God, look at what he says next. Look at verse, back to Hebrews chapter 7. Look at what it says in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Remember that indestructible life that Jesus rose from the dead, that he lives today, that we're not worshiping someone who did some good deeds and died 2,000 years ago, but that what we've gathered to do here today is to sing the praises of one who lives and intercedes on our behalf. Look at what he says in 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost... Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you ask me to pray for you, and sometimes I have the privilege of having people come and they go, hey, would you pray for this or would you pray for that? I write those things down. I pray for them. I pray for our adult fellowships. I pray for our small groups. I pray for our church. I'm praying for you, but you know what? I I, I pray when I remember. I pray when I see the list. I pray when I'm able. I pray when I have time, just like you do, because I'm just a human being, right? I can make intercession for you in a limited way because I have limited power and limited presence, but the Lord Jesus makes constant and unlimited, perfect intercession for us. He is able to save, it says, utterly, which means completely and eternally. Not something you have to do again and again. Not something that will ever be uh, superseded by someone else's work. Not something that ever needs to be exchanged for something else. Jesus is able to utterly save because he lives Because he is alive today, interceding for you, a mediator between you and God. Jesus is able to do what no human priest, what no human institution can do. It says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If anyone ever comes to you and claims to give you or offer you some kind of special access to God, that by paying for their programs or going to their seminars or reading their books or attending their church, that they'll give you some kind of special access, the Bible says that's false. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's the Lord Jesus, and he mediates for us. He is interceding for us permanently because he lives forever. So not only do we have this hope because of the promise of God, but we also can put our trust in the permanence of the Lord Jesus. And then lastly, we put our hope in the perfection of Christ. The perfection of Christ. Remember we talked earlier about the fact that any human leader, any human writer, any human being is broken. They are by their very nature broken in sin, stained, unholy, unrighteous, and sooner or later destined to prove that in a public way, right? But look at what it says about Jesus in verses 26 and following. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 26 says this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, which just means unique in the fact that he isn't broken in sin like the rest of us. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests but the word of the oath which came later 
than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What's it saying? Those old priests, remember when they would go in to make sacrifices for other people, they had to first make sacrifices for their own sins, right? It says here, Jesus doesn't need to make sacrifices for his own sins because he didn't have any. Because he always glorified God in thought and word and deed and attitude. He was able to make a perfect sacrifice, right? He didn't offer a sacrifice for himself. He literally offered himself as a sacrifice, a perfect atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Where do we find our hope? Where do we find our assurance that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to any other priesthood? We find it in the promise of God, in the permanence of the Lord Jesus, and in the perfection of Christ. In those three things, we see that Jesus is infinitely better than any human priest, than any human leader, than any pastor or institution we could ever put our hope in. That he and he alone is the one who's able to grant us access to God. And here's where I came to my conviction, right? I told you uh, earlier this week as I was reading Psalm 84 and I was listening to these people in the old system go, it is so awesome to stand at the door to the house of God. It is so awesome to enter into the courts. I'd rather be in the courts of God than anywhere else. It's better to be there for a day than a thousand days anywhere else. And I go, man, that is cool. But, but all they were doing was getting close to God. And what Jesus has afforded to those of us who put our faith in him is not a closer proximity to God, but the actual and absolute indwelling of God within us. The absolute and, and actual dwelling of God in us as a body. And I don't know that I feel this celebratory very often. When's the last time you sat down and wrote a song about how blessed and privileged you are to have this kind of access to God, to have the God of the universe dwelling within you? When's the last time you wrote poetry? When's the last time you painted a picture? When's the time you went out under the sky and shouted for praise of God for the access that has been granted to you? These guys are excited to stand at the door. They're excited to stand at the door. And we just sort of take it for granted that the spirit of God lives within us. You know what, this week, as you're being thankful around your Thanksgiving tables, you got, we, we all have a lot to be thankful for. Be thankful for the food we've got. Be thankful for the clothes on your back, the job you've got. Be thankful for this incredible country we live in. All of those things are spectacular. But you wanna know the greatest thing we have to be thankful for? The greatest thing we have to be thankful for is that Jesus reconciles men and women to God. That he has granted us access to the God we were created to be in communion with. We should celebrate that. We should celebrate it. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Can I say this this morning? If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus... If you're still spiritually dead right where you sit, there's no reason to feel ashamed of that because that's where we all were apart from the work of Christ. But if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, if you've been trusting in your own efforts or you've been trusting in religion or you've been trusting in some guru or some spiritual leader, if you've been trusting in anything other than Jesus, don't you feel the insufficiency of that? Can I tell you there is only one sufficient savior? 
There is only one perfect advocate. There is only one that God has promised on an oath. One who is permanent and one who is perfect that can intercede on your behalf. This Jesus who was appointed our high priest, not based on what family he comes from, but was appointed our high priest because of the power of an indestructible life. Can I say with the writer here, be reconciled to God. If you've never knelt before God and said, will you save me from my sin and myself? I invite you to do that today, to turn to God. We have the opportunity here in a second to celebrate communion. Not communion, sorry, the, the ordinance of baptism. And it's exciting because it is a declaration of our solidarity with who Christ is in his death and resurrection. If you're here today and you've never been baptized, but you've put your faith in Christ, what are you waiting for, right? What's the holdup? This is something God gives us the opportunity to participate in. If you're someone here this morning who maybe, who maybe is just putting their faith in Christ, as we speak, God's drawing you to himself. There will be the opportunity for you later in the service to come and be baptized this morning as a declaration of your dependence upon the saving work of Christ and Christ alone. I invite you to celebrate with me the access we have to celebrate the indwelling spirit of God in our lives that Jesus provides for us. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would move in us to have hearts of joy and celebration hearts of absolute thankfulness and gratitude because you are a better high priest, because you are not temporary, because you are not flawed, because you aren't just appointed into your role because you were born in the right place, but God, you are confirmed with an oath. You're perfect and permanent, interceding for us forever. We praise you that you give us a better hope than the hope we could ever have in human individuals or institutions, and we pray, God, that you would remind us constantly of how blessed we are, that you've saved us, that you've reconciled us to God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.